So Jesus, our prayer this morning is that you would speak to us and do it in such a way that we could really hear with fresh ears, even familiar stories, familiar thoughts and ideas. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jesse. I'm part of the staff here at Belprez, and it's good to be with you. We are in the middle of a teaching series on the Gospel of Mark, and as has, as has, yeah, I did. I screwed that up in nine too. As has already been suggested, the Gospel of Mark is kind of like this action movie. If Jesus' life were an action movie, it would be the Gospel of Mark because there's these short, hit, staccato kind of action scenes. I feel like Mark is kind of like the Stephanie Meyer of gospel writers. Stephanie, who wrote the Twilight series, like Jacob did this, then Edward did that, then da da da. Like nobody cares about how anybody feels or how things are set. It just does this, 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 this. Okay, we'll try that with the six o'clock cloud and see that if that works a little bit better. I know you guys have read all four Twilight books, so. Okay, just Christina Dudley. Um, <laughs> So even though we're only going to look at seven short verses this morning, even though we're going to look at seven short verses, these seven short verses are action-packed. And I believe they have much to reveal about how good God is and just how much we can trust Him with the details of our lives. Because these seven verses are all about trust, radical trust. And they're all about why God is so trustworthy. And contrary to Presbyterian Preaching 101, this sermon is going to have five points, not just three. That's 40% more points and no extra cost to you. You're welcome. Just like Mark gets into it. We get into it pretty quick. And as we pick up this story in Mark chapter 6, Jesus has been traveling around preaching and healing people. His disciples have been traveling with him, and they have been eyewitnesses to what Jesus has been doing. And now, after some time together, Jesus is sending his 12 disciples out to go and do what he had been doing. This is a pretty ordinary training system that Jesus was using, especially common in his day. He has had his disciples learn from him by watching what he does, and then he's sending them out to go and do, do likewise in order to increase their learning. But there's a twist to Jesus' system, and it's this. He says, go and preach repentance and bring healing and do all those things, but <laughs> don't take any extra supplies. Don't take any money. Don't take extra clothes. Wear the most basic shoes. You can't even make any reservations for lodging. Just show up. Something's going to work out. Now, many of you have been on or are going on short-term mission adventures, right? You ever been on this kind of short-term mission adventure? When I was first uh, married, about three months into our marriage, Katie and I went to Kenya as part of a project that she had been working on to get some water out to this really remote village on the edge of Lake Victoria. And we had to raise a lot of money. And we had to get all of our shots, and we had to get our passports, and we had to get the malaria medicine. And then we had to, like, get a bunch of people to help us make those travel details and book the plane tickets and book the buses and do all that stuff and then require some stuff for lodging and all this. And if Jesus had come to me and said, Jesse, don't worry about it. Don't take anything extra. You won't need any money or food or extra clothes. I would think, Jesus, you're a silly, silly man. Don't, you're crazy, right? And if I told you that was my plan for going to Kenya, hey, I'm just going to go. You know, it's all going to work out. Food, I don't need food or money or whatever. Like you'd think I was sort of naive or irresponsible at the very best, 
or maybe like crazy and had a death wish at the very worst, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, we would never, never go with this plan. And I can imagine these disciples looking at each other, kind of taking these words in from Jesus going, why does he have to make everything so hard? Right? I know a guy at Expedia. We could just make some calls. It doesn't have to be this way. Why does Jesus do it this way? Because of our first point, and that's this. Radical trust begins with radical dependence. Radical trust begins with radical dependence. A few weeks ago when Scott Dudley started this series, he talked about an experience that he had while rock climbing. And one of my favorite authors, Parker Palmer, describes another scene, a very similar scene in which he is rock climbing. And he's rappelling down. It's the first time he's done it. He's on this cliff. So he links himself in. He throws himself back and he slams into the cliff. And his helpful instructor from below looks up at Parker and says, I don't think you got it. And Palmer's like looking down going, yeah, you, you think so? And so remind me how to do this again. He goes, yeah, you got you to gotta lean way back and get your body at a right angle to the cliff and then let yourself go, to which Palmer said, no, that's crazy. And he threw himself out again and slammed into the cliff again. And then he just kind of sat there swinging by this thing and said, okay, explain it to me one more time. And the instructor said, you got to lean all the way back. Get your body at a right angle to this cliff and your feet will take you down. He followed the instructions. He got down. It's this little picture of having to learn to fully lean into Jesus in order for our faith to mature. Fully lean into Jesus. Because very often our stuff, our resources, our skills, our abilities, our expertise, our connections, very often all those those things get in the way. I fall back on my understanding of things, on my abilities and my skills to control and to manipulate, and so I smash into the rocks once again. It's not that those things are bad. They're not. In partnership with Jesus, they can be very good. They can change the world. But often I don't use those things, those resources, those skills, those connections in order to make a life with Jesus. Usually I use them to make a life apart from Jesus. I want to depend on my own strength on my own connections. And here we find that most fundamental human problem, self-reliance. We are experts at this. Because of sin, it has become our default setting. And radical trust is scary because it implies radical dependence. And I don't know about you, but I don't like dependence. I don't really even like interdependence. I don't play well with others. Ever since I was a little kid, I didn't even like doing those group projects. Those are awful. Maybe you can relate. There's always that one person that doesn't do what they're supposed to do. And you can't smack them. Because then you have to see the principle. Not that that ever happened to me. I don't like interdependence. And we, as a culture, as a nation, we certainly strive for that independence. We built our lives. We built this country. We, we're awesome. We're at the Olympics. We're cool. And Jesus is like, those things are all great. I gave you those things, but here's the deal. Unless you fully depend on me, unless you fully lean back into me, your life is going to be all about striving and competition. You will never be satisfied. I'm going to have to fight to stand out. I'm going to have to fight for my comfort, and I'm going to have to fight for my rights, and that will become more important than your needs. 
And Jesus knows this about us, and he wants something so much better for us. So he says to us, depend on me. Lean all the way back into me, and you'll find the kind of life that you're looking for. It's counterintuitive, I know, but this is how I set up the world to work. In fact, in Matthew's version of this story, in Matthew chapter 10, we hear those famous words from Jesus, that whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. In other words, the life that you're after will not result from endless striving to do things on your own. It can only come from actively surrendering to God's way of doing things. It's the result of radical trust in the goodness of God, which is why the second point is so important, because radical trust focuses on God's goodness. A writer named Dennis Rainey tells the true story of a missionary family on home from furlough, and they're staying at a friend's lake house. And mom and dad are kind of doing different things, and their three little kids are running around the the lake house in the area, and their four-year-old non-swimming son wanders down to the dock, and suddenly dad hears the 12-year-old daughter scream. He runs down to the dock, he realizes what's happened, and he dives into the murky water. He goes searching frantically for his son, can't find him, has to come up for air twice, goes back down a third time, finally finds his little boy clinging to this wooden pier. He pries the boy's fingers loose, drags him up to the surface, pulls him onto the shore. They're both gasping, both very much alive. He says, Billy, what were you doing? And Billy just calmly, quietly says, just waiting on you, Dad, just waiting on you. Now, I would question Billy's common sense here. I'm just going to be honest. Billy didn't seem to me a a smart kid. Um, But it's this little picture, right? It's this little picture of trust that reveals this second point well, that radical trust focuses on God's goodness. Why did Billy wait down there? Because he knew his dad was coming for him. He knew he was safe because he knew his dad was coming for him. You see, if God is not as good as he says he is, then we have no reason to trust him. And this is the first and most pervasive lie throughout human history. Did God really say, don't eat the apple? Sounds like he's holding out on you. This is the lie we still continue to believe, that if God is not as good as he says he is, well, then we have no reason to trust him. But if he is, then we have no reason to fear. See, trust is just this active confidence that God is good that he's good, that he really does have our best in mind, that he really is trustworthy. And so the only way to really get this into us, and God knows this, is to draw God's goodness kind of to the front of our minds throughout the day, to think about this stuff, to kind of dwell in it, to saturate in it like a sponge. We've got to soak it up if we're going to be changed. And I can think of a couple quick ways to do this throughout your day. One is just practicing gratitude. When Kitty and I were first married, the woman who had done our premarital counseling, uh, she gave us this suggestion, that before you go to bed each night, just turn to each other and say three things that you're thankful for from that day. Just three things. Could be anything like, oh, that was a great meal. Oh, that was a cool sunset. Whatever it was, just share three things with each other that you are thankful for. And that's a great tip. We did that a lot in those early years. Now that we have a 10-month-old son, we just go to bed and go, thank God the day is over. I'm so tired. It's a true story. (laughs) I've been up since 2.40 this morning because of that. But 
I love that little boy. Um, gratitude is key. The second thing, of course, is scripture. And this has always been true for the people of God, that they use scripture to remind themselves, remind themselves of God's goodness, especially in the Psalms. One of my favorite Psalms is this. I'm going to read it to you because at least in the nine o'clock, it's a pretty small font and that's my fault, not theirs. But it says this, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him in my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. We have to practice those things throughout our day that remind us of God's goodness because our default setting is to do life on our own. And we have to learn to trust him. Why is this so important? Because of this third point, which is this. Radical trust means living with mystery. It means living with mystery. In life, there are going to be some unanswered questions, period. As smart as we are, as advanced as human civilization has become and will become, there are just always going to be some gaping holes in our understanding of how the universe works. And that's because God's ways truly are not our ways, not our thoughts. God really is different, unique. So radical trust is going to mean living with mystery. When I was a junior in high school, my mom started having some weird health issues. And over the next couple of years, I watched her go from walking on her own to using a cane, to using a walker, to using a wheelchair. And eventually, she was totally bedbound. And after a few more years passed, we finally got this diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, the chronic progressive kind. At the time, my dad was the pastor of this wonderful, tiny little church in central California, and these folks just loved on us and groaned with us and prayed with us especially. They organized prayer events. They organized meals for our family. They knew my mom had always wanted to go on a cruise, and so for my parents' 25th wedding anniversary, even though my mom was bedbound and couldn't go anywhere, they took blue cellophane and put it up on her windows, and then they got a bunch of little church kids with buckets of water to throw the water up on the windows. Kind of give the sense of being out at sea, and, and they had this luau music kind of blasting from outside, and they had organized people to come in as families and just chat and hang out for a little while. And incredible stuff. This little church loved us dearly and prayed for us without ceasing, and I prayed without ceasing. For eight years, I prayed without ceasing every day, many times throughout the day. God, take this away. And nevertheless, on January 2nd, 1997, despite all of this gut-wrenching prayer, my mom died. That experience has left a giant hole in my heart and a giant gap in my understanding of how God works. And I know a lot of you know what I'm talking about. And it may not be the loss of a parent. It might be the loss of a child or a partner or a dream or a job. Whatever it is, there's this big question mark that you just, it's always there with you. 
I know that you can relate to that kind of pain. And whatever it is, it's a loss that has no good explanation and never will, at least not in this life. And so we ask appropriately, why? Why, God, did you let that happen? And why is a very important question. It's a very biblical question. Read the Psalms and you discover that any person who has a heart after God is very comfortable asking the word why. Asking the question why. And yet, and yet, do I want the answer more than I want the God who answers? Do I want the answer more than I want the God who answers? Because I can idolize my need for an answer so much that I can miss how good God is. I can say, God, you say that you're good, but I've got this big question. As long as, if, if you don't answer that, I'm not going to trust you. And I lift up this need for an answer above the need for the God who answers. But in the end, I have the choice to either trust that he's as good as he says he is, or he's not. It just kind of comes down to that. It's right to ask why. It's necessary to ask why. You might be in the middle of why right now. I want to affirm you and say that is real. That is good and healthy and biblical. It's awful. But Jesus sees you in that. And the reality is that at least on this side of heaven, our trust in God's goodness still has to take precedence over our need for answers. And that's an almost impossible task. And Jesus knows this. Which is why the fourth point is so crucial, and it's this. Radical trust requires community. Radical trust can't be sustained on our own. It cannot. We cannot radically trust ourselves to the goodness of God without the companionship of others. It just won't work. This is why he sends his disciples out two by two. Because he knows that they need each other to remind each other of God's goodness. And this is what we do as well. As we risk, others risk because we risk. Our faith adventures encourage others in their faith adventures and vice versa. I'm more likely to risk if you risk with me. A few summers back, my wife and I were working at uh, this summer camp in California. And every Monday morning, the leadership would get, get together for breakfast. And we would just kind of laugh and groan together and pray for one another. And when fall came, literally none of the 11 of us around the table knew what we were going to be doing. And as the fall snuck up closer, we kind of the laughter got louder and the groaning got deeper and the praying got more intense. And eventually things started opening up and this person went there and that person did that. And, and what made all this so unique and so powerful to us and what makes our hearts ache for it even still is that we were in it together. More than an answer to these questions of what are we going to do? How is the job going to work out? What relationships are we going to be in? More than that, we needed each other, coming alongside one another, praying for each other, groaning, not trying to give each other answers, not trying to make a bunch of suggestions, just saying, ah, oh, this is tough. I'm in it with you. Let's laugh and pray about all this stuff. That made all the difference, all the difference. We have to have each other in order to grow, in order to sustain this radical trust. Which leads us to this fifth and final point which is this. Radical trust changes the world around us. This is exactly what we see happen with these disciples, right? They go, Jesus, I think you're kind of crazy. You know, it wouldn't be that hard to make a few travel plans, buddy, all right? 
But they go and they decide to trust him a little bit. And what starts happening? They start preaching this repentance. Turn around from the life you've got. Turn to this way of Jesus. And people start doing it. They bring healing. They pray for healing, the release from demons. All this stuff starts happening just because they took these little steps of trust. These little steps of trust change the world. I've got some dear friends in California, Seth and AJ. And they are incredibly talented musicians who I used to sing with uh, back when I was a worship leader at my old church. And they have a daughter named Vivian. That's Vivian in the middle. This is obviously back in Halloween. And um, Vivian has always, her whole life, she's about a year and a half, has always had very serious health issues. And this is especially uh, painful because it took them so long to get pregnant. And they were so, uh, it was such a painful process for them. But it happened, they had Vivian, but then Vivian had all these serious health issues. And in fact, most of her life has been spent at the children's hospital. Incredibly painful. Well, there's a few hundred of us who follow Vivian's updates every day from Facebook. who are kind of keeping track of this thing. And Seth and AJ, again, incredible musicians, what they've been doing while Vivian rests, they've got the guitars and they'll kind of wander down the halls of the children's hospital and start playing music and singing these silly songs for the kids who are hurting and for the families who are feeling confused. And they'll just come along and cheer them up and brighten their day. That wouldn't even cross my mind to do that. When I'm in that kind of space, I'm like, I'm in pain, God. It's about me and my pain, and I'm in it. And... But their little acts of trust are changing the environment around them. But it goes further. See, Seth and AJ had this family move in next to them in the children's hospital who didn't have any health insurance, and they had to be in there for a few nights. And you know that's pretty much the end of your financial situation if you've got no health insurance and you've got to stay in the hospital. So they called upon their few hundred Facebook friends to just donate a few bucks, and they were able to raise enough money to pay for this family's hospital visit. Wouldn't even cross my mind to do that kind of stuff. But that's what radical trust looks like. I think that's heroic. They would never say that's heroic. They're like desperate. They just don't know what to do with themselves. So they're wandering up and down the hall, singing songs, praying, asking for help. But that's... That's what happens when we trust Jesus. Things start to change around us. People start to change around us. We lean on Jesus with radical trust, and he changes the world through us. But I want to close with this. We always have to remember that it's Jesus who does the changing. It's Jesus working through Seth and AJ. It's Jesus working through you and me where we're at. Brennan Manning reminds us of this truth. He writes, like faith and hope, trust cannot be self-generated. I cannot simply will myself to trust. What outrageous irony. The one thing that I am responsible for throughout my life, I cannot even generate. One thing I need to do, I cannot do. But such is the meaning of radical dependence. And such is the meaning of radical trust. A trust that begins with this radical dependence, that focuses on the goodness of God, that is bathed in mystery, that requires community, and that in the end changes the world around us. Jesus initiates it. Jesus carries it. Jesus completes it. That is the promise to you, to me, from a very good God who says, trust me. So what are those areas of your life 
that require that kind of trust right now. God's not asking you to be heroic. God's just asking you to come and let him be with you in that. Let's be together in that as we close up this time. Jesus, there are many of us this morning who are in that space of why and uncertainty about how that is going to get answered or maybe dread about how that's going to get answered. And I thank you that it, you decided that you didn't just need for us to have this intellectual, intellectual ascent that, that you're good, but you actually want, to, want us to experience that. So I pray that you would even give us reminders today, this morning before we leave, through the kindness of somebody else that we know or that we don't know, through an image, through a memory, would you remind us of how good you are, of how you are for us. God, increase our trust that the world may be changed around us. Pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.